in in uh, attempting to in attempting to serve as a, as a pastor, there's there's a lot of a variety of experiences that one would one would uh, encounter. Uh, certainly, uh, there have been experiences that that I never uh, imagined early on, and uh, when I was given the charge of of being a minister, there's just a lot of things that were not covered in that hour-long charge. Some of the real happy times have been when uh, different ones of you have uh, called and, and uh, said that your, your newborn baby was just born, and I've been able to go to the hospital and, and have uh, prayer with the family and sometimes get to hold the, uh, the little boy or little girl, and those were really uh, special, special times and uh, great blessings. And through the through the years, there are certain experiences that sort of stand out, and I'll share this one with you, and then leading up to a couple of points right here. When uh, Sister Pearl Lowry passed away, uh, Brother Elvie uh, was her son, Brother Oscar was her husband. Brother Oscar had preceded Sister Pearl in death by a few years. She was up in her 90s, and so was uh, Brother Lowry. And as Sister Pearl, we were having her service, the three sons who were at that time probably in their 70s, probably late 70s, most of them, Elvie, I think Gerald, who you knew, he was a member here, and the son Freddie, and the three boys were standing there. And before the service, and they said, you know, looking back, we were blessed with godly parents. Now, we spoke a while back about a godly mother. And if the Lord will bless, I'd like to just open up some thoughts about a godly father. And if you've been blessed with the experience of having a godly father, then... You thank the Lord for that because not everybody experiences that. I'll ask you, what do you think your children are going to say about you when that time comes? It should be our desire to be godly followers of Christ. And when we're gone, it, I would hope that folks would recognize that we had a desire to serve the Lord. But even if there's somebody that maybe cannot say or make the claim or statement that they had a godly father as an example, if that were the case, we don't have an out at all because every one of us here had the best example of all of a godly father, and that's our Lord. So we've been blessed with godly fathers here in this life. And those that are godly fathers follow the example of the Lord. But every single one of us here are blessed with the ultimate example. And that is of our Lord. So I, I, I'll just mention briefly a few things that not at all all-inclusive, but here's a, a few things that... What does it take to be a godly father? What is it that's required to be a godly father? 
We're given in Proverbs chapter 31 an outline of what it takes to be a godly mother. But what is it that takes to be a godly father? A godly father has uh, a lot of weight upon him. And first of all, a godly father above everything else is that he needs to love the Lord. That he needs to have a heart and a desire and a love for the Lord. Above everything else, his wife and his children and his friends will witness. If he has a heart that's tender toward the Lord. If he has a heart that is drawn to the Lord. If he loves the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says right here and he mentions... uh, he says, uh, here therefore, um, here therefore, O Israel, he says, the Lord our God is one God. And he says, and thou shalt love the Lord, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And then he says, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. He emphasizes the importance of teaching the statutes and the, the, the laws to the children. But he says, starting out, before you teach, you need to show your children that you love the Lord. So above everything else, a godly father has to have a love for the Lord. And he says, this is how you teach. He says, teach them diligently. It's a priority. It's a priority in your life. He says, teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. A New Testament example that supports this as well is in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, uh, it mentions not only uh, the first example of loving the Lord, but it also mentions something else right here. He says in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, he says, The first of all the commandments, Jesus said unto them, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And he says, and with all thy strength, he's saying right here that your greatest desire, your greatest mark of being a godly father is to have a a passionate love for the Lord. He says to love thy Lord with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And he says, this is the first commandment. And then he says the second commandment. Not only should a godly father love the Lord, but he ought to love other folks as well. He says right here, the second is like namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So first of all, a godly father is one that loves the Lord and that he loves others as well. Now, we're taught in Matthew chapter 5 about how that we're to love even our enemies. And so if we have somebody that comes in our life, that we witness in our life, that, that, uh, that maybe we do not feel a love toward them, then we ought to pray to the Lord about that. 
He says it's easy to love those that love you. It's easy to love your friends that love you back. But he says we should be willing to love those that maybe don't seem to be so lovable. So a godly father is one that first loves the Lord. And a godly father is secondly one that loves others as well. A godly father, uh, another point, and I'm just going to scan through these right here real quick. But a godly father is also one that is to be a good example. A good example. I, I was blessed with with wonderful grandparents and 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 I still remember many of the lessons that my my grandparents taught us early, early on in our early years of life and one of the things that I remember about my grandparents that that was so beneficial for me is that they were great examples for me and I can look back upon their life and I can remember my granddad would say little things that would that still stick in my mind. I, I can remember granddad saying, and it, it rings more and more now than it did even at the time, but he would say, he'd say, Stephen, just be sensible. Well, that didn't mean that much when I was young, but I tell you, as I get older, when I think about doing something that's not sensible, I can remember granddad saying, just be sensible. Now, my sister told me after she did it, uh, she didn't tell me before, but she did it, told me after she did it, she went skydiving. And she said, I think you'd like it. And all of a sudden, I could remember granddad saying, just be sensible. And I thought, don't really have a desire to do it. And, but... A godly father is one that teaches by example. In, in uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, to Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart. You may not realize it, but the training that you're doing, God may bless it, and you may witness it in your lifetime. You may not witness it in your lifetime, but ultimately God is going to be honored because he gives the promise right there that you train the child up, and the way that he should go. And he says when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Another example, and grandparents really fit this bill so well. In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, another example of a... I, I, I remember uh, uh, an older brother saying one time that sometimes God blesses folks with the role of grandparents because he said... Uh, he said, um, we learned through all of our mistakes as dads, and then we can correct those with grandkids. And you know, that's kind of the situation that um, grandparents are, are, are very, very forgiving, aren't they? In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, it says, And fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke children to wrath. I, I was so blessed with, with four wonderful grandparents. My grandfather uh, on my dad's side, he was so easygoing. I could talk to him about anything. I could ask him for help. I could ask him for advice. In fact, uh, he taught me how to drive. At uh, 10 years of age, we... Uh, 
We learned in the uh, caliche pit, that's a big hole where they uh, mill out uh, caliche from this big hole, and so you can't really hurt anything, and he took me in his little work car and little Ford, little 62 Ford Falcon. Granddad never jumped onto me. He never got worked up, never got excited. If I got to go in too fast, he just simply reached over and turned the key off. <laughs> Didn't say anything. But then when I progressed and graduated from the Cleachy Pit, then he took me to the cemetery. You have to be really well skilled to be able to drive as a 10 year old in the cemetery. No telling how many tombstones were dented up at that time. My grandfather was very, very patient. And as he got older, he became more and more patient. I do not remember that trait about my father. Maybe he couldn't be. It was a critical time as we were growing up. But the example that we're given right here is that we're taught that we're not to provoke the children, but to train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The next one that is uh, that I'll mention right here is that a godly father needs to be the example. The best way that the children and the young folks are going to learn is by example. And they need to be an example of a good worker. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you can see that men were called by God, that, that, that Adam was called by God to tend to the garden. And there's not only strong encouragement given to men to work. Men were, men were made to work. Men had the uh, God-given responsibility to work. And you teach your children by the example that they see when you are working and when you're diligent in your work. And he says that not only does he give strong encouragement for men to work and to be a provider, but he says in, in, um, in Thessalonians and in Timothy that if men do not work, he describes it this way. He just simply cuts through all the chase and he says, if a man doesn't work, he ought not to eat. Well, now that'll get one's attention pretty quick. You won't miss too many meals before you realize the urgency of working. Young men should be taught at an early age the importance of working. And if you're taught at an early age the importance of working, you'll realize that there's more to working than just getting a paycheck at the end. There, if you're taught right, if you're taught early on, there, there's something that's lacking in many areas right now, but there is a great satisfaction that young men, young women, but especially young men can receive when they simply do a good job. We were taught early on that we should be used to make a difference and that when we finish something, it should be better off than when we started something. And he says right here, and he gives real good at admonition right here. He says, a man that doesn't work ought not to eat. Well, now that, that would get our attention real quick. Not many of us would want to miss too many meals before we figured out how to work. And, and then another verse says 
that a, a, a man that will not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. An infidel just simply means an unbeliever. Well, that's a pretty strong uh, rebuke of somebody that's not willing to provide for their own. So another example of a godly father is one that's willing to work, that will work. Now, some folks say, well, I have trouble finding work. I can relate to uh, brother and sister Chastain. They're almost 80 years old. They live in, in Indiana and they're large corn farmers. And brother Chastain and sister Chastain told me, said, we never had trouble finding work. Work just seemed to find us. So we should be willing, if we're able, if we're able, we should be willing, we should be willing to work. Another one is, uh, is uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He, he gives the description right here of those that are, uh, are, are bearing some of the fruits of the Spirit, uh, ministers of the gospel, deacons, and he says that, that we should be sober. And what he means is that we should have self-control, that there should be self-control. And then the last one that I'll mention right here in, in Galatians. Uh, we should, if we are godly parents, if we're godly fathers, we should be expressing and bearing some of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is these, and it describes it right here. And this would be a great example of a godly father. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it's joy, and it's peace, and it's long-suffering, and its gentleness, its goodness, its faith, its meekness, its temperance. Against such there is no law. It's unlikely that all of these would be embraced and expressed all the time. But it certainly should be a goal and a desire of a godly father. To manifest in his life, in front of his children, in front of his grandchildren, the fruits of the Spirit that are the result of God planting his Spirit within. That it, 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 it manifests itself. It comes forth. And if you've missed that opportunity as a father... Maybe God will give you some grandchildren to have a, another opportunity to take some of those things that you've learned and begin to apply those things. And may you not only be the best godly father, but the godly grandfather. He says, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. You may say, well, I didn't have the example that I wish that I had. But if we look a little bit deeper, a little bit farther, our best and optimum example is our Heavenly Father. Every one of us here are blessed with a Heavenly Father who has it right all the time. We might miss some of the marks some of the time. But our Heavenly Father is the perfect example. 
this was said about a godly father. A good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. I pray that in the day in which we live that God will bless us to witness godly fathers. Not only will you be a blessing to your children while you're here now, but even when you're gone, your children will rise up just like Brother Lowry did when he was after his mom and dad had passed. And he said, looking back upon our life, we were blessed because we had godly parents. Now then, we have the responsibility that God gives us to honor the parents. It doesn't say that parents have to be perfect. Parents aren't perfect. Children aren't perfect. We have a Heavenly Father that's very, very long-suffering when we're not perfect, that loves us in spite of our imperfections. But we're called to honor our parents. And he says, if we honor our parents, if we honor their legacy, and we honor our parents, God blesses us in doing it. He blesses us with two promises. Number one, that it will be well with you. And number two, that your days will be long upon the earth. You have the blessing of showing honor to your parents. And that's not just when you're young. It's especially when you're young. But it's when they're old and we're getting old as well. May God bless you. The blessing of a godly father and a godly mother. God bless you. Brother John. I very much appreciate that message from Elder Bloyd. And as always, it is good to be with you in the house of the Lord. In a moment, I'd like to look at the beginning of the Gospel of John. On days like this, it is good to remember a number of things. Being a father and having a father puts me in a position to uh, consider, spend much time in consideration. We know that there is a particular distinction that the Word of God gives us about honoring our fathers. Those who hate God, especially in our society, would have a complete opposite perspective. For indeed, we honor our fathers in part because our fathers and their fathers and their fathers, all the way back to our shared fathers, starting with Noah and finishing with Adam, walk with God. So every generation is one generation farther from walking with God in the garden, in purity. If you are a believer of evolution, you would believe that every generation is better and closer to godliness and perfection. And so the previous generation is something that should be discarded as early as possible. And so there is a distinction between those who love God and those who don't. But I like to look at a time before the garden. The Gospel of John starts, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now this is a passage of scripture that 
If you haven't spent time considering, I highly recommend it. I recommend maybe even writing it out and looking into some of the things that have been said about it. There's much debate easy, easy to be had, but there's nothing debatable about how perfectly in concert with the rest of Scripture this section is. However, it is remarkably deep. And so I'd like to unfold a few things for you this morning, if opportunity permits. But starting at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word here doesn't just mean words, generally, or words written down. It means the Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And he was there in the very beginning. There's many ways and places where this could be borne out, but if you were to even look at John's first letter to the churches, you can see in his introduction there, he gets into this a little bit more deeply and from a slightly different angle, again expressing the word is Jesus Christ. In a different place, he said there is um, the Father, the Spirit, and the Word as the parts of the Trinity. But here it says that he was there in the beginning. And so when you consider Jesus, you should consider first that he is eternal. From before the beginning of time. The time before time, for lack of better words. Because this idea is beyond your imagination to start with. And so that means it is a worthy thing to imagine it. To consider it. Because every bit of work you put into it, you will gain just that little bit extra more understanding of God himself, his person, and what separates him from you. And the word was with God. Now that is an amazing promise because right now we stand, in a way, separated from God. We have his word. And in many cases we have his spirit dwelling within us. We have the company of the saints. But we are not near the grandeur and glory of God the Father. Where the Son sits at his right hand, now ruling from heaven. We are separated from that greatness, from that glory, from that perfection. Where is no defilement. But Jesus had only one time ever when he was separated from God. And I'll hope to look at that again later. But what's said here is that Jesus was with God long before there ever was anything. Before the elements were spoken into existence. And more than that, the word was God. The word was God. Now it doesn't say the word was a God. It says the word was God. Jesus was not just a power in heaven, a power as a part of creation. Jesus was fully God, all God. If you consider this, and this starting point for Jesus, long before the conversation of sin and coming down for us ever begins, he is worthy of all of our worship, all of our attention, even as Elder Bloy just read, all of our love and affection, all of our consideration, all of our imagination, all of our song says the same, was in the beginning, with God. And again, he was God, he was with God, and he was there in the very beginning. If you haven't taken time to consider this, I highly recommend it. If you take time on Sunday afternoons to get back into the Word, this this book might be a good place to start, to consider who it is that came, and what it is that's being written. And it says, moreover, all things were made by him. So that means Jesus wasn't just fully God. He wasn't just eternal, but he also is creator. And God said the word, let there be light. And there was light. All things were made by him. That is to say, everything. If you're familiar with the Proverbs, in Proverbs 8, 
wisdom speaks as from the word. It is uh, written by Solomon. It talks about wisdom being there from the beginning. And the passage reminds you very much of Jesus. It says things along the lines of, before the foundations of the earth were built, I was there. I was with him. And then it goes on to say that with the sons of men was my delight. Which is, of course, an encouragement to you to seek out wisdom before you need it. But it is a picture also of this very Christ. And he was there from the beginning, and all things were made by him. And, to make it even more clear, without him was not anything made that was made. So it wasn't just that Jesus had a portion of creation that was his. He didn't just take care of the songs or the birds or the earth or the seas or the winds. There was not anything that was made that was made without him. Again, I hope that the fullness of his glory is beginning to come into sight for you. Because it says later that Jesus is the glory of the Father, made manifest for us. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he wasn't just creator. He wasn't just eternal. He wasn't just with God. He wasn't just God, as though one can say something like that lightly. But he also was the fountain of all life. For even to this day, when those who have had their eyes open and their hearts softened, to in whom eternal life has been given, not one of those has ever happened aside from Jesus' action. Not just that, though. Even all the way back to the beginning of life with Adam and Eve, none of them came from any other source than the very fountain of life itself, Jesus Christ. I hope this is beginning to paint a picture of how dark was the day when the fountain of life died. How amazing it would be that he should come and be a part of his creation. But more than that, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Now consider that. It's not just that he was the life that keeps us moving, but he is the very, that same life is the light by which we see the world, by which we see each other. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis that he loves Christianity not just uh, because of what it means and shows him, but because it is like the sun, that by it all things are suddenly made visible. This same Jesus is the light of men. So he was not just the source, the everlasting source of all things, but he is the light of all men who walk in both ways. And we have, of course, as a part of creation, many examples of the glory of God. The skies show it to us, and in part, the sun shows it to us, doesn't it? For the sun doesn't just produce light for us, but all life on earth is in part provided for by the light and heat that comes directly from the sun. If the sun were not to be, the world would simply not be. And so in this, we have a picture of the work that God does in perpetuity for us. That he didn't just do it in the beginning, but every moment, by him, we live and move and have our being. He continues to be that fountain of life. And yet, let us consider the reaction. It says that the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. What does that mean? Well, in every generation there have been countless men and women who have rejected the word of God in the exact same way that Adam and Eve did in the beginning. And so if you consider the nature of sin, that in the first, it rejected God without reason, but in the second, that to this very day, 
It poisons and kills. We're all walking around with, with masks on our person and on our bodies and trying to stay certain distances apart to follow the best recommendations of the smartest minds with regards to a virus that the CDC recently estimated something like a third of a percent of people are passing away from, and most especially the sickest among us. We have altered our entire lives, and for some of us, we have lost work and lost many other things. For a season, we all lost our opportunity to be together here in this church. We have changed everything for a disease that spreads quickly and is that deadly. Consider the travesty of sin in the world and in your individual life that it has a 100% death rate. It kills all who encounter it. And the only way, the only way to undo the horrible things that sin has done to the glory of God and to the life from whom he has given was that he should come, this man, this God, should come from outside time, from eternity. The only solution was not one that we could come up with. And yet we continue to justify, to always come up for a reason for our sin. A reason for those things which we have done have been directly contrary to the word of God. And yet consider, consider how deep and how far God had to go to bring to us what one might call a vaccine. But I don't think it's a vaccine once you're already dead. For the solution had to be much more than just an inoculation. The solution had to be the re-giving of life in a way that was unimaginable and unheard of. And yet, though the darkness comprehended it not, and though it says later he came unto his own, and his own received him not, it says nevertheless that as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor beloved of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that self-same will that refused him, that would rather take the poison for the moment of pleasure it provides before it extinguishes the very life and that communication with God in the beginning. Even that will is not the thing which we depend on for our life. But all is not lost, right? For it even says here that he came unto us, and though we did not receive him, it says as many as receive him, and those who received him came from God. Now we have considered the darkness of sin. How horrible a thing it was. How the darkness itself comprehended not the creator himself. How that we chose darkness rather than light. How we choose again and again death over life. And yet, this solution which God has given us, that came from the beginning, from before time itself, that was the word, that the word was with God and the word was God. And this same that was in the beginning with God, by whom all things were made, and without whom nothing was made, and in whom is life. And that life is, to this day, the light of men. And the light that shineth in darkness and comprehends it not. That light and that life, though he came down and had his heel, as it says, bruised for our sake. Consider also, not just the need for the solution, but the power of the solution. That this very fountainhead of all life and all light presently, to this very day, has taken intimate concern with your salvation, with your godliness, and with your justification. And I'd like to leave it with this, this final view of where we hope to go, of our completed desire in heaven. In a description of heaven in Revelation 21, 
One of the things that's said of it, it says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And who is the glory of God? From what is its source? It says, And the Lamb is the light thereof. The Lamb that was slain. Imagine a world where you don't need a sun to shine. Because he is there, and all things are visible thereby. It says, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth. Neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thank you for your good attention.